And in the song were these words. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. And with these words, imagine all the people sharing all the world. It was a heart cry in the face of so much horror, so many bad things happening around the world. Wouldn't the world just be better off without religion, without church? We could all just get on. It's a common belief even today, isn't it? That religion and particularly often Christianity causes wars and problems. And if we could just move on, grow up beyond that and all just get along, wouldn't it be better? However, as one author, Francis Spufford, very helpfully says, if you remember the series Friends, he said these words, imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no hell, imagine all the people living life in, hello, excuse me, take religion out of the picture and everybody spontaneously starts living life in peace. I don't know about you, but in my experience, peace is not the default state of human beings any more than having an apartment the size of Joey and Chandler's is. But it's a fair question, isn't it? If Christianity is good news, why does it seem to cause so many problems? (laughs) Maybe it isn't such good news after all. This series that we began last week, we're going for these nine weeks at the beginning of 2020, is all about looking at the very first Christians and daring to say and daring to pray if we're followers of Jesus, Lord, do it again. Right here, right now, in Bourneville, in Moseley, in Kings Heath, in Northfield, wherever we find ourselves, Lord, do it again. We catch a glimpse of the very first Christian communities. And we discover something astonishing, that a changed community changes the world. It's only when a group of people who are utterly transformed themselves that they're then able to transform the society in which they live. Let me illustrate it like this. They say that um, imitation is the highest form of flattery. And if that's the case, the Beatles song yesterday is the greatest song there's ever been because it's estimated yesterday has been covered, has been cover versions of the song yesterday over seven million times. Wow. It is definitely one of the greatest pop songs ever written. You don't need me to tell you that you don't judge the quality of Yesterday by the Beatles by listening to the Daffy Duck version. (laughs) Surely you listen to the original. And surely the same is true of the good news of Jesus. The tune has been played very, very badly throughout history. Time and time again, the church has not played the tune well. We think of the Crusades. We think even in our day of certain sections of the church with such horrors of abuse. We know, even the greatest critics know, that is not the original tune. You don't judge yesterday by listening to Daffy Duck. 
And dare I say this morning, if you're here and you're not sure whether you'd call yourself a Christian, you're on the fringe of things, or whether you would say you're a Christian, but frankly, you're getting a little bit disillusioned with this thing called church. Maybe we need to return to the original song and therefore try to play it as well as we can. Because the passage that we read has a little snapshot of the best version of the song. Listen again. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, we discover that in this community, that there therefore there was no needy among them because they looked after each other. Even with all our technological advances in our society, we cannot say that's true in our world. There are greater injustice today, perhaps, than there's ever been. And yet here we have the tune being played so beautifully well. Maybe we need to return something of it. In fact, that we can see that this first Christian community was so good that the impact across society was massive. Look again. It's the, it, the, the verses we read are sandwiched between two verses. Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then at the very end, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This radical Christian community with the message that they had to share and the life they were living was so revolutionary society had to take notice and as a result it people wanted in the tune my friends was being prayed so so well and that's our prayer this year that's why we've produced these study guides again do join in do read through the book of acts because our prayer is lord do it again in my life in our church, in our day, right now. Lord, please, do it again. I want in. And what we see in this little passage is the potential impact of us. Would you do me a favor? Look at the person next to you. And then look the other side at the person on the other side. Together... You are dynamite. Why don't you say that to the person? You're dynamite. <laughs> Just to say, by the way, I want to say, that's not a chat-up line. I'm not, I'm not, you know, don't go there. <laughs> and dynamite's good, by the way. <laughs> so what was it in this first Christian community that made it so beautifully? What was it they were doing that made the song linger so well and that the society around them wanted in? Well, I want to suggest the opening verse sums it up so well. Here it is. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer that Sue has already highlighted for us this morning. And I think there's three key thrusts that summarize what they were doing, how they were living, that made such a radical change. And dare we pray, Lord, do it again in our day. Do it again in my life. So here's the first aspect. They were devoted to the message of the Bible. 
See that? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In fact, if you were to kind of go back to the original language, it's not just they devoted themselves, it's, it's they continued to devote themselves. It's an ongoing thing. It's not that I've ever, I know it now, I'm, I've done, I've done the A-level. They continued to devote themselves. So, of course, a question is, what was the apostles' teaching? What is it that they are referencing that they're so devoted to? Well, fortunately, the author Luke gives us some hints. Right at the beginning of Acts, we read these words about when Jesus has died and come back to life. He appears to his dis- disciples, and we read these words, Acts chapter 1, verse 3. After his suffering, that's after Jesus had died, he presented himself to them, that's the apostles, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So basically, the apostles had this kind of full-on Bible study for 40 days with the risen Jesus. What a Bible study. That's a Christian conference and a half right there, isn't it? But of course, you want to know what was it that Jesus was teaching them so that then they, as the apostles, could then teach others. And then, of course, then the church was devoted to it. And then we have it handed down to us in the pages of the Bible. Well, fortunately, Luke tells us. Because Acts, if you don't know, is Luke chapter 2. Luke version 2. It's the sequel. Like the Godfather part 2. Except slightly better than the Godfather. (laughs) Slightly happier, dare I say. Um, Luke chapter, Luke version 1 is, of course, the Gospel of Luke. And right at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we read these words. Jesus said, this is again, after he's died and risen again, he appears to his disciples, and Luke reports this. Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law and the prophets and Moses and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. What was it they needed to understand in the scriptures? He goes on. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Do you see something astonishing in those verses? Let me go back. Jesus said, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me, says Jesus. So what is the apostles teaching? What is it that Jesus spent those 40 days with his disciples after he's resurrected, nailing into them so that then they could change the world? It is the fact that all of this points to the death and resurrection of Jesus. This, my friends, is all about him. It's the good news of Christ. What is the message of the Bible? When you pick it out, where does it all point? It all points to our need for a savior and that God himself stepped in as our savior. So why is that so important? Why is that apostle's teaching so important for us as a community if we want to impact our society? Well, a few years ago, a survey was done in the U.S. Uh, Often surveys are done in the U.S. (laughs) But this was done by some sociologists wanting to find out what people's perception of Christianity was. They interviewed 3,000 different people. And basically, from those 3,000 different people, randomly selected people, 
the summary that they came up with, the shared summary of what Christianity was about, was astonishing. Here is the four core components of Christianity according to these randomly selected people in America. Here they are. Component one, God wants people to be nice and fair. Goal number two, uh, core thing number two, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. Core thing number three, God doesn't need to be involved in your life unless something's going in wrong. And core thing number four, good people go to heaven when they die. The sociologists who conducted that survey referred to it and they coined a phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism. No idea what that means, but it's a good one to mention in conversation. Moralistic therapeutic deism. In other words... The perception of what Christianity was about was basically feeling good about yourself and helping others to feel good about themselves. Now, that's a good thing. I want to suggest that doesn't change the world. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the good news of Jesus, that there is a God who is so passionate about Birmingham and this world that he stepped in to rescue us from ourselves. And no matter how hard we try, we can't rescue ourselves. We need a savior, and God himself has done it for us. That is breathtaking, astonishing good news. Because most people would like the idea that, yeah, of course we want to be nice, we want to be fair, that's lovely. Of course, I want to feel good about myself. But of course, the question is, we all know people in our society for whom they're not involved in good things. What about us? Where do we go with our mess? If it's just feeling good, maybe we need a savior from outside. That's why their devotion to the central truths of Christianity is so important. So friends, Can I encourage you this year, let's be a community who spur each other on, reminding us that we've got a saviour who's done enough. That's why groups, if you're not part of a life group or a community group, can I encourage you to get bedded into one? Because that's the place where we will discuss together and spur each other on to remind ourselves when we've failed, we've got a saviour that picks us up and loves us. And when others have failed, we can help pick them up because we know that they're no better, no worse than us. We're just all the same sinners who've got a savior. That's good news. Friends, let's be a community that's devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's the first aspect that changed the world. The second aspect, though, is interesting. In the light of being devoted to the apostles' teaching, there is a natural outworking, and it's this. They were devoted to each other. Have you noticed something in our society? In recent days, and I think probably since social media, there is such tribalism. You vote this way, I vote this way, I hate you. You follow this particular team, I follow this particular team, therefore we're going to be at war. In other words, there are lots of communities, but those communities are so often with people who agree with each other. What do you do if you disagree? 
And I want to suggest it's only because of the good news of Jesus that these first Christians were able to get on at all. And the power that we have in this room is that we are a mixed bunch who actually, in normal times, shouldn't really get on. But because we've got a saviour, we can therefore look to others as no worse or no better than us. We're just friends walking side by side on a journey towards our saviour. Only the good news of Christ enables that sort of community. And look at the way that devotion worked its way out. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, this isn't what you could call communalism, which is where they kind of you know, didn't own anything. You know, they had... All the houses were all shared and all that sort of stuff. It's not that people didn't own anything. Why? Because we see time and time again that people sold things to give to those in need. If they shared everything, they would have had nothing to sell. The point is what they did have, they shared. Does that make sense? So it's not a communalism where they all had one big bank account and that was it. But what it was is that regardless of who you were, regardless of your lot in life, you realized that your sense of community was one in that because of what Jesus has done, how on earth can I be living life of comfort where my brother or sister is in great need? Now I know at Riverside there is much of this that goes on. There are people in this room who have experienced that sort of provision. And I think the simple encouragement for us is, let's keep going. If we see somebody with need, maybe we can just do stuff to help out. If we know there's people in our community that have real need that we could meet, maybe this year, we can just, in a really joy-filled way, meet those needs. Also for us as a church, you'll be aware that there's some financial challenges. Maybe for some of us, this year is a year where we will be rethinking, actually, maybe I can step up a little bit in how I get involved in that, helping those needs. So they met each other's needs. Why? Because they had a savior that had met their greatest need. How on earth can I not then meet the needs of my brother or my sister? But there's another expression of it. It's not just in our financial provision and all of that, but there was something else. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. There was something about their community life that was a lived experience where they just spent time with each other and ate together. So here's the question for all of us. Who are you eating with? Are you eating only with your TV? Maybe this year there's an opportunity to eat together more. And it talks about breaking of bread. What does that mean? Uh, well, it probably means 
they were eating meals together, and in that context, they were also sharing communion as part of the meal. We kind of make it a thing we do in church, which is great, but actually in the early church, it was perhaps they did it as part of their meals. They would eat meals, and then they might also break bread and remember what Jesus has done as part of it. Here's the encouragement for all of us who are in life groups and community groups. Maybe this year, we can share communion together in our groups, and maybe we can do that around meals. Because there we see community really built, where we eyeball people and say, you're my brother, you're my sister. Here, let's eat together for all that God has done for us. May this be a year of great community, where we actually realize we are family. And I know that right now, even in these last few days, there are people who've been overwhelmed by the expression of love and community that there's a whole army of people who've got their back because they're in real difficulties, but there's a family, a community devoted to them. May 2020 be a year where we say, do it again, Lord. I'm up for this. I want to partner. I want to be in. I'm playing my part in this family. So they were devoted to the message of the Bible, the apostles' teaching, that message of Jesus. They were devoted to each other, brothers and sisters. I'm neither less than or more than than anyone in this room. But they're all an expression of this final point before we come to respond. They were devoted to God. It's obvious, isn't it? Read again verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to each other as it were, and to prayer. That key sign of devotion to God, getting on our knees, whether actually or metaphorically, and pouring out our hearts in prayer. Have you ever noticed how there's one of the questions that Jesus' disciples asked him was this, teach us how to pray. Not so much teach us how to change the world, teach us how to live in community, teach us how to model a different way in society, teach us how to be successful, teach us how to do well in my job, teach us how to have good marriages, teach us how to relate well with our kids, teach us how to be a good friend. All of those things are good, but they knew, Lord, teach us how to pray. That little thing that we find so difficult and yet such a beautiful, intimate thing of devotion with God. And over these last three days, uh, three days at the beginning of this uh, week, where we prayed together and we fasted together as a church, I was musing to myself as to why is this so powerful? Why is there such dynamite when we do this together? And I began to wonder if because in the act of praying, we are declaring that it is not about me. Because we are acting out our need for God to do something. And therefore, we're showing that we cannot do this. There's something devotional to God in prayer because it relieves us from the burden of needing to be the Savior. It's beautiful. And perhaps the reason we struggle with it is because we quite like the idea of being our own Savior. And when we get on our knees and say, God, have mercy on that family. Have mercy on that person. Lord, fix that thing. Lord, I long for this to happen. What we are saying is, God, you're the saviour, not me. 
Have mercy. Maybe that's why it's such a powerful thing to do. Augustine, years and years and years ago, said this. Thou hast put salt on our lips so that we might thirst for thee. My hope and prayer, stripping it all away for 2020, is that we will be thirsty more and more for God. That's where prayer comes in. Because we create a culture of desperation. God have mercy on Bourneville. Change this city. Change this nation. I can't do it, Lord. And time and time again in the book of Acts, we see this ragtag bunch of misfits changing the world because they're utterly devoted. They know that Jesus is alive. As a result, how on earth can they treat anyone worse or more than themselves? And in an ongoing way, they're simply on their knees saying, God, have your way, do your will. So it's been a joy to begin the year in prayer and fasting, but as we've just seen, let's continue it, whether on our own or in community in the various different ways, saying, God, do it again, Lord, please, in our day, please. And as we come to a close, and we're going to respond to this, look at the attitude in which they did all of this. And this is one of the biggest challenges for me, I think. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. I wonder in our culture if one of our biggest challenges is that we can be quite cynical. These guys were so transformed that Jesus is alive. There was utter joy. They were thankful for all that he'd done. Glad and sincere hearts. May this year be a year where we moan less (laughs) and thank more. And as we do so, say, Lord, do it again. Do it again. One of the stories that came out of last weekend before we respond is there were, uh, was a guy who's on the edge of Riverside, not a Christian, brought a friend who also isn't a Christian to one of the gatherings. And in this gathering, they were so aware of God's presence that they had to leave the room. And as a result, they've had to change everything in the way that they understood God. Friends, when we gather together as community, there is power for those who don't believe. And so as we invite our friends this year within to the community, we hope and pray, Lord, do it again, because there's something beautiful. Dare I say it, there's dynamite in this room. <laughs>